Thank you for downloading Producer's Pick from Sounds True, a podcast dedicated to bringing you moving, captivating, and intriguing selections from our programs. In this podcast, the producers have chosen a selection from a program they've worked on that caught their attention as a unique or special moment in the recording process. This week's episode, Distress Relief, comes from an audio learning program from clinician, author, and couples therapist Stan Tatkin. Producer Steve Lazard recorded this program with Stan. Here's what he had to say about this week's producer's pick. The world of relationships is fascinating to me. There is enormous potential within a relationship for growth, but there is also the reality that relationships can be hard. We often misunderstand or misrepresent what's occurring, and for many of us, there are not a lot of great models for healthy relationships we can look to as examples of how to do it right. Thank goodness for Stan and his work. In this program, Stan offers clear and specific examples of why couples fight and he helps clarify the deeper issues underlying many of those common conflicts. In the selection I've chosen for you, Stan touches on what he considers to be the three most important tools couples need to be good at in order to build healthy relationships. Navigating distress management, understanding what he calls exciting love, and the role of quiet love. It was a delight to work on this program with Stan, and I hope you enjoy this selection. You can download relationship prescription at soundstrue.com and now our producers pick distress relief with stan tatkin there are several things tasks that couples all partnerships successful partnerships must be able to do one of them the big one is how good are they at co-managing distress states, discomfort, pain, anger, fear, sadness. How good are these two people at managing this problem in a way that efficiently takes care of distress in the moment and that takes it off the table as quickly as possible so that secure functioning couples are good at co-managing distress in that they never let it go too long or get too intense. Because as I will describe in the next section, having anything that goes on too long that's too intense becomes a memory issue. And we want to talk about why memory can be a big problem here. But distress is a big one. And partners who aren't good at co-managing distress generally have a short lifespan. If they're not good at foreshortening and soothing and quieting down distress without dismissing it, sweeping it under the rug, or just neglecting it, they're really good at just dealing with it so that they're able to shift to a different state, one that is not distressful, and still be together. They don't have to go out of the room, leave each other, take a break, They certainly don't have to attack each other. So a lot of this is going to have to do with co-regulation of states. And now I'm going to get a little bit more wonky. So imagine the two of you, instead of skin and flesh and face and all that stuff, you just look at 
two spinal cords, a brain and spinal cords, right? Skeleton with that, two of you standing face to face. You may not realize it, but you're really two nervous systems interacting. And that's important because two nervous systems interacting are interacting at lightning speeds, speeds at which you can't even fathom, speeds that are sub-psychological, speeds that are happening way before you even know it. And much of this interaction between nervous systems is nonverbal. It is through the face, through the voice, through the eyes, through body movement, through skin color, even smell up close. All of this has to do with these two nervous systems getting along. And how do they get along really well? They're able to manage each other as nervous systems. Notice I'm not saying each nervous system is responsible for itself. No, not in this game. In other situations, sure. But in this game, in the primary attachment situation, where two people are in each other's care, they have to interactively regulate each other. They have to co or mutually regulate each other's emotional and mental states. That's how it's going to work. That's how it has always worked. That's, by the way, how it works and is supposed to work in infancy. Okay? So, two nervous systems interacting at lightning speeds faster than thought. What could possibly go wrong? Well, everything. And that's the reason I'm doing this audio program with you. I'm not, again, dismissing Money Time, Mess, Sex, or Kids, or any of the other content areas. Those are real. Those are true. But I'm going to convince you by the end of this program that that is not what is causing the problem. Never is, never will be, never was. It's going to be this nervous system issue. Two nervous systems, getting along or not getting along. And by the way, that's not personal. There's nothing personal about it. In order for something to be personal, it has to have intention. In order for something to have intention, it has to be conscious, or at least somewhat conscious. This is not conscious. This is not psychological. This has no meaning so far as you will be able to tell. It is simply about survival. It is simply about not getting killed, which is one of the things we have to do in order to survive as a species. And believe it or not, that is running through our lives. That fact that we have to survive, that we have to know when we're in danger. And that's a system that can run rampant very easily. Remember I said our brain has a negativity bias from birth. Without any other input, the brain will go negative. Without positive signals, the brain will go negative. Without interaction, the brain will go negative. It always does. Why would nature set that up, by the way? Why? Well, because if you have to survive a dangerous world with predators, wouldn't you want a brain that is built for that, that is very aware of the environment, of anything that could be threatening? That's why. And guess what? Even the person you love the most could be threatening and will be threatening at different times. Just think about your teenager. You love your teenager, but look at that smirk on his or her face or the rolling of his or her eyes. That's threatening, okay? That's the brain in action. We have to survive. And this part of us, this rapid moving system is smart 
but not smart in the way we think of ourselves as human beings. It's smart in the way that it shoots first and asks questions later. Because we have to survive. We mustn't get killed. And so two nervous systems co-regulating, which means they have to be good, these two nervous systems, at dealing with distress because distress can lead to threat and threat can lead to feeling of predation and then we have a big problem. So the human nervous system runs faster than thought, than words, than even awareness. The socially, emotionally capable and skillful couple is going to be really good at this and is going to be good at distress management. There are three important emotional states or body states that couples must be able to do at least well enough. One is to manage distress, which I'm going to talk more about. The other is to create and be able to co-create exciting love. Exciting love is addictive love. It is the addictive love that got you into this position in the first place. It is what got you here. Because when you first met, you were in courtship, you were on drugs, and you saw nothing else, felt nothing else, wanted to sense nothing else except that person that you chose. That's exciting love. It's dopaminergic. It involves the reward system. It is the thing that makes you want to do again and again, right? That's exciting love. Now, you may think that that is over when courtship is over, or that if you're married 30 years, that there is no more exciting love. Not true. Secure functioning couples know that exciting love can be generated anytime they want. Anytime. They know the skills for doing that, and they also know that it must be there. They have to be able to co-create this, because that's the vitality part of life. That's what makes you want to come together again because you want to, not because you have to, not because it's a drudgery, not because your relationship is utilitarian. It's because you want to. And that exciting love, generally speaking, is created and co-created in three different ways. Way number one, something called primary intersubjectivity. That's where we look at each other eye to eye and face to face. The gazing, the excitement, the looking into each other's eyes. For some people, it's not thrill and excitement. For some people, it's discomfort or shame or intimidation. But it's supposed to be, and for most of us it is, exciting. And it's where we fall in love. We fall in love through the eyes. We're visual animals. Our brain is a visual brain. And so that's primary inner subjectivity. It's looking into each other's eyes lovingly and maybe saying, God, I love you. I'm so happy I'm married to you. Things that are admiring, things that make us feel good. That's exciting love. Okay, but we can only do that for so long and then it gets really kind of annoying and boring, right? We're going to only stare in each other's eyes. We're going to say these things. Okay, enough. Let's do something else. So then we have the second way and that is secondary inner subjectivity. And by that, I mean, we're going to use joint attention or we're going to basically use a third thing a third object, as a way to reignite that exciting love for each other. We're basically using it. What would that be? Our puppy. Oh, God, our puppy is so cute. We look at our puppy, and then we look at each other and go, God, puppy's so cute. I love you. 
oh yeah, I love you too. Okay, that's joint attention. We're using the puppy, sorry puppy, but we're using the puppy basically to to turn ourselves on with that presynaptic dopaminergic squirt in our brain that makes us want to do this again and again. Thank you, puppy. We do this with our child or children. We do this with new scenery. When we go on vacation, we see something that's so gorgeous, so beautiful, we get excited. It makes us turn to each other and we go, God, I love being here with you. How exciting. And we may hug and kiss. That's using a third thing in order to amplify excitement. Let me explain amplification. Two human brains have this ability to amplify. You can't amplify emotion or nervous system states with a ball or a pet rock or a sea monkey. You can do it maybe with a dog. If the dog catches your eyes for a moment, there was that study. If a dog catches your eyes for a moment, you will produce more oxytocin. However, it's also true if you chase the dog's eyes, you get nothing because it's a dog. But a human, another human being, another human brain can amplify itself, right? That system is self-amplifying with exciting love. By the way, the amplification effect also works with bad stuff. We can amplify the negatives. We can amplify feelings of fear, amplify feelings of sadness, right? So again, there are good and bad things to this, but I just want you to understand that we have the ability to amplify states. And so by using a third thing to get us back into exciting love, we're creating an amplification effect again and again, which recreates that feeling that we had when we first met. That's how skillful people can do this. Third way, and this is one that you may not have heard of, unless you've seen it, using personal excitement as a way to parlay that into mutually amplified positive excitement. So here would be an example. I am reading some good news in the newspaper, and it affects me in some way, just me, and I'm feeling really great. And I use that excitement by calling out to Tracy, and I just say, God, I love you so much. I am so excited about what we're going to do next week. Okay, I converted my excitement into something she could use. Because if I said to her, oh, honey, come over here and read this thing, that's not really exciting for her. She'll do it for me. But it's a burden. She's got to walk over here you know, to where I am. She's got to read what I'm reading, and it's really not for her anyway. And so the best she can do is go, oh, that's interesting. Now, if I did that a lot, it gets to be annoying. So that's not a good use of personal excitement. Better to convert one's personal excitement into something usable by their partner, thereby you get the amplification effect. You get much more dopamine. You get much more excitement because now they're able to use that personally for themselves. Okay? So, by the way, this comes to be true also. If you've been sick all day, right? You've been sick all day, you don't feel well. Check for those moments when you're not feeling so bad. You kind of feel good. Even if it lasts five minutes, that would be a good time to call your partner and say, God, I love you. Or something. You pick. Pick whatever you want. But make sure it's usable by your partner. I mean, just saying, oh, I'm feeling better in this five minutes. That's nice, but it doesn't really excite your partner. You won't get that amplification effect. So learn to convert your personal excitement, personal moments of relief, 
and find a way to make it usable to your partner so you can have that amplification effect. Okay, now the third way. We've already talked about exciting love and we've talked about distress relief. The third is quiet love. That's kind of in the middle. That's being together in a quiet but alert way. We don't have to really do anything. We could be using parallel play. In other words, we could be doing the same or different activities while together in the room. But it still involves attending to each other, looking at each other, saying things to each other perhaps, or just lying with each other physically. So quiet love isn't dopaminergic. It's more of a serotonin-based state, also involving lots of other lovely things like oxytocin and vasopressin. Either way, it's an important place to be because here we're able to just be with our partner without doing anything. It's energy conserving. It's not energy expending. We're not expending much energy. We're just being there. And it's one of the times that we start to really feel safe just being with that person, just being with each other. So couples that are able to co-create quiet love are also going to be very successful. Secure functioning couples co-create exciting love, quiet love, and they're good at co-managing distress. Even if by themselves they're not very good at it, you're going to find that people can be bad at some of these things by themselves, but as a team, they're golden. I should also say that some people are really good at this by themselves and they pick a partner and for whatever reason, they're terrible together. That's the issue here. Two nervous systems, either they get along or they don't get along. Either they're able to regulate each other or they can't. That's not personal. That's nobody's fault. That's nature. <laughs> 